preaching of God's Word is in Luke chapter 18, and beginning there at verse 18 through 23. So we hear Christ from Mark 8 saying that we are to deny everything else, to lose our lives in order that we may indeed find them saved. And here is an illustration of that very thing with this young ruler who was a ruler of a synagogue, so religious, who was moral, as we'll see, and was rich. And so in many ways, he's the ideal man. He is not merely an ideal man, he was a real man. But in many ways, it's the kind of man that we long to see more of in this world. And yet notice the exchange between this man and the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 18 Verse 18 through 23. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father And thy mother, and he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Notice that the narrative extends beyond because Christ will then speak to this context and the disciples will say, who then can be saved? And Christ will give this tremendous statement, verse 27, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. But we look particularly at verses 18 through 23 this morning and think of that most earnest question that is asked. He says, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a lot that's bound up in this question. We've seen over the past few weeks that this question is asking, what must I do to be saved? And that's why, of course, the disciples uh, hearing these things say, who then can be saved? And so it's a question of entering the kingdom of God, as Christ is teaching on in this section And so the man comes with earnestness. And we could, of course, desire and do desire that more men, young men, women, young women, would have like earnestness, having their eyes fixed upon their need of an everlasting life. Is there a more important question than this man asks? What shall I do to inherit everlasting life? I dare say that the majority of men in this age are concerned about far lesser and far inferior matters. What must I do in order to enter into the next strata of uh, wealth? What must I do to gain a little bit more influence? What must I do to build up my health? What must I do to look fitter? What must I do to look better? What must I do? And you'll notice all of these questions lead to actions. So as soon as one asks the question, what must I do? They then start pursuing the things to be done. So if we want to, quote, look better, as many have made resolution this past year, they subscribe to some gym membership and start going to the gym, eating better and so on, all of which is lawful and fine and good. The point being, when the question grips somebody, it leads them unto action. And so this man is showing some sincerity, right? He comes with this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And to whom does he come? He comes uh, to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll notice as the text unfolds the narrative, that this man who appears earnest, and doubtlessly we deny not that he is sincere in asking, and has been freed from much that is scandalous as his life testifies, yet is still bound to a state 
of sin and misery, perhaps in ways, and it seems as in ways that he did not see. This is instructive for us in many ways. One, you know, we should rejoice sincerely when someone comes with a question, what must I do to be saved? How do I gain everlasting life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? These are questions which we desire and ought to cultivate. But Christ gives us insight. He gives us insight in counseling others. He gives us insight regarding ourselves. Because Christ doesn't say, well, this is great, and let's just move on with it. He searches the man. He examines the man lovingly, carefully, and so on. So he raises the question, why callest thou me good? What an interesting question. As we'll see, it's full of implication toward the man himself. Because as he says, notice the statement, none is good save one that is God. Now, Christ is not denying his own divinity, but he's cultivating in this mind's estimation the tremendous difference between God and man. And he's laying a foundation for this man to see that your perceived goodness and what you perceive in others whom you would call good is but far inferior and it's darkness compared to the brightness of God's goodness, which is a fundamental need to discern if ever we should truly see how desperate our condition is. Christ sets him upon the commandments, particularly the second table. From honor thy father and thy mother unto bearing false witness. Though you'll notice he leaves out the tenth. Thou shalt not covet, which is rather insightful because after the man says, all these have I kept from my youth up. Christ says, yet thou lackest one thing. Go sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And what is discovered is this man was still bound with a love to himself, to his earthly prowess and position, his status, his comfort. He loved himself above all else, even though outwardly he was giving evidence of concern. Christ is discovering not to Christ's insight, but to the man's insight of himself that he actually was still bound to this most dreadful state of sin and misery. He is good master indeed because he's teaching this man and by consequence teaching us first how great a thing salvation is and how great a thing his grace is and how great a need we have of his grace. Remember this comes immediately upon what Christ taught that if one should receive the kingdom of God, it should be only as a little child. That is, he should be abandoned to the provision alone, not of his own doing, but up to the provision of another. And so it's insightful that this man says, what must I do? Think of it this way, parents. What must your infant do for you to care for them? Well, the reality is they, they don't do anything. You care for them. They are fully reliant upon your provision. And in similarity, this man is coming seeking to contribute something further. Look, all that I've done already, what else must I do? And Christ's point is that you have such an attachment unto the things of this world the conclusion of which is precisely what verse 27 says, this is impossible with men. Here's the point. You can do nothing to qualify, to earn, to merit entrance into the kingdom of God. It is necessary that God does it, that God saves you, that God delivers you. So we'll consider these things over the course of the next few weeks. But notice particularly these verses before us in this unseen chain of his love to himself, which was superior to his love to God. So let's notice two things primarily. Firstly, the seen chain, the chain that this man sees. And secondly, the unseen chain that Christ discovers for him. And in doing so, it may be to our own help, as well as for those who have been delivered to their rejoicing that God has ever caused us to see 
our absolute need of his grace. Well, what is it that this man sees? What is it he sees as binding him to a place of misery? Well, one thing we can see in the text is that he realizes death is coming. And so one thing he sees is the misery of death. It's, of course, quite true that in our world, it seems that death is everywhere tried and attempted thing to be ignored. But here the man comes and says, what must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He realizes temporal life will end. And he desires that which shall continue. And this is an inescapable reality of every person. However well we eat, however well we balance our exercise and sleep, however much sunlight we get, however wholesome our lives are, however religious we are, as we'll see, however diligent in the right things we are, the reality is each one of us is going to face the inescapable reality of death. This is a solemn thought, but it's a useful thought because it does cause us a degree of conviction. My life shall end. However happy it is for a season, it will come to its conclusion. And of course, the man as a Jewish man would have well understood that after this life comes the judgment. And of course, in our culture today, many question and mock such a universally acknowledged truth throughout history that judgment does come. But when it is that we no longer ignore what is blatantly obvious, that the God who made all things will call us unto account, this then strikes us. Death is not the end. This is far too often misstated at funerals and other such gatherings as if death is the end of misery. For many, death is the end of the mercies they've received. And it's the entrance upon the torment they justly shall endure. Death is the gateway unto that which follows. And this is something that ought to catch us. It ought to grip us. Now, for the believer, of course, and we'll see this, death has become the last great enemy whom we face and by Christ's grace overcome and enter into everlasting life. But this man is gripped by the reality that he is not assured of eternal life. In fact, he's testifying he doesn't have it. I've sought it. I've pursued it. I've sought to order my life well. But what I can't shake off is the reality of death. Parents today hesitate to speak of their children of death And yet, countless parents bury their children before they themselves are buried. They do their children a disservice in not speaking of death. Because those children, whether in their youth, teenage years, or adult years, shall face death. That's a scary thing. And what happens is in a culture that has underserved us and under-equipped us to address it, parents panic Questions come from children whom we love and care for, and we don't know what to say. And we think, well, this is too heavy. This is too real. This is too significant. And so some parents have taken the route of never bringing their children to funerals and other such things as that, which is all the more worse. What we see here is death is a preeminent thing that the Lord uses to quicken people. And far from it being hidden from us and put away from our attention, it's actually useful for the purpose of awakening our souls to see how great a need we have of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice he sees this, he feels it, he senses it, and he's desiring to escape it. So he sees the chain of death and he's saying, what must I do to gain life. What's another aspect that he sees? Well, doubtlessly, one other thing he sees is the profanity of sin. This is why when Christ says to him, notice, you know the commandments. Think of this simplicity. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. 
And what a testimony, verse 21. He said, that is the young ruler, all these have I kept from my youth up. So, in other words, he's not just a civil ruler as it is in verse 18, a certain ruler. He's a religious ruler. He's likely a ruler of a synagogue, a man uh, equivalent to elders in the church today. And he is an exemplary man, a man whom men and women, as he was growing up, would have been impressed with the solemnity of his carriage and the maturity of his approach They would have been impressed by the way in which he didn't take part in the other things that children were doing, but he himself was secured unto a path of outward righteousness. In other words, we can say he saw that sin brings further misery. This is a lesson that the world is so slow to understand. Isn't it true of ourselves that it's taken us a long time to see that sin doesn't lead to further joy and gladness. It actually leads to worse experiences. And what is astounding to us is that men so love sin that they keep bumping into it and crashing into a a world of iniquity that unleashes further miseries upon them. And so they get provoked and they speak profanely and all sorts of other brokenness follows after they get attempted and they pursue after it and for a momentary pleasure it then breaks forth into all manner of further brokenness well this man is a man exemplary for our age in that he stands from his youth ordering his life with care that it would not spill over into open scandal and so he says listen i know the commandments And I have been diligent from my youth up to order my life accordingly. Mark these words, because Christ sees it and doesn't say, well done, good and faithful servant. He notes that this man still lacks one thing. What's the point? Children, it is our prayer. Young people, it is our prayer that your life would be free from scandal, from profanity, from adultery, from fornication, from all the pornography that is so readily available and which men promise themselves pleasure by, but are arrested in their brokenness. This man was free from all of that. He was a man which would stand head and shoulders above the youth of our age. He saw the brokenness of those things and he evaded them. He disciplined himself. He hemmed himself in to the path of outward conformity of the Lord's law. This is, of course, a conscientious commitment. He saw that profanity ensnares and it deadens the conscience and it arrests them into further brokenness. And he saw that chain and he sought to break from it. Furthermore, he saw the chain of religious ignorance. Here he is, a religious man, diligent. What, again, head and shoulders above our own age, where men just embrace ignorance. Well, you know, who can know? And who needs to be diligent about these things? Think about it for a moment. There are men and women this day more diligent upon betting odds for the approaching Super Bowl than they are about their soul. Think of that for a moment. They're going through all of these different things that they can do, not just winners, but what's the spread and what's the likelihood of this play being done, that play being done. They're reading gobs of blog posts and listening to all of the professionals. They're investing in those things, filling their heads with at best entertainment, at best financial gain. They're going after that knowledge while they will not so much as turn an eye to the sacred pages of Holy Scripture. They will give themselves to all manner of these things, but they will not so much as sit down for 10 minutes time to read the Bible. 
They'll give themselves to watching this show and that show and taking in all these things and talking about it with their friends and co-workers and listening to various radio stations and podcasts and all of these things, pouring their lives into those things. But they are contented to be ignorant about the truth of salvation. This is a mark against our culture. We talk about the people of Rome being satisfied so long as circuses and gladiator battles were being fought and the whole of the empire was caving in around them. Immorality was abounding while they were contented with entertainment. Brethren, think of this for a moment. That is our culture to a T. Our culture is satisfied with entertainment. It cannot stand to have 10 minutes alone without their phone out buzzing, without the television on, without the phone call going, texting, engaging with others. They have to be entertained. And to sit down with the Bible for 10 minutes is to them purgatory. It's painful and difficult. They'd rather do all of their hobbies than to engage in the cultivating of the true knowledge of salvation. Now, brethren, this man already has shown himself diligent, but he perceived this further chain. He realized that with all of his diligence, with his awakening that death is coming, what is he doing? He's investing more time to determine the truth. He's seeking knowledge. He comes to Christ and asks Him, Good Master, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What's he saying? I have an ignorance that I can't stand. I can't tolerate this fact that I am ignorant of the way of everlasting life. This man is awakened. We don't mean he's converted, as we'll see. But he is awakened to the reality that there are chains attached to him that he needs help being freed from death, profanity, and his own ignorance of the way of salvation are all clearly articulated by him. And oh, what a blessing it would be were you and I to witness similar concern in our day and age. And yet, in all of this that he sees, he goes without seeing that which is the strongest of chains upon him. Now this should be kept in mind because we pray for the awakening of sinners. We pray for people crying out, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? One of our prayers for our children is that they would be awakened to see their desperate need of salvation. And perhaps even in some sense of the carelessness of our souls with reference to everlasting things, we've even prayed for ourselves. Oh God, would you give me some sense of the weightiness of so serious a matter of salvation? Well, if this man realized death was coming, if this man saw how gripping profanity was, if this man knew his own ignorance and thus was compelled to come to Christ and ask for eternal life, and yet, in this portion, was not brought to faith, we ought to be careful that we are aware of this chain which he was not aware of. So what is this unseen chain, secondly? Notice that the first part of it is that he fails to see the all-surpassing excellency of God himself. This is the point of Christ's question. Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is, God. What's he getting at? He's forcing upon this man this reflection. You call me good, that's not wrong. But do you even know what good is? Do you understand what it is? It's similar to Christ giving the parable earlier when he says of the Pharisee that went up to pray. He stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, 
Or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. What is that man? Well, he's good relative to other men. He's good in the sight of other men. And what is this ruler? He's generally good. Parents, he's the kind of man that you would be pleased to come and ask your permission to marry your, wife, your daughter. He's the kind of man that would impress you and say, he's religious, he's earnest, he's disciplined, he's established, he has all of the markings that are appropriate for me to say, that would be a good man for my daughter. And yet, howsoever good he is compared to men... He has failed to come to terms with this truth that his goodness is as refuse before God. That there's nothing. I mean, think of the question, even the way it's worded. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What else must I do? I've done all these good things. I've kept myself from those other things. I've been diligent to, you know, keep my life well ordered. What else must I do in order to inherit these things? You see, even in his approach, there is this acknowledgement in his approach that he has failed to see that God is infinitely good. And our best good is infinitely beneath what is worthy of God. What this unseen aspect is, is that he has failed to see himself ultimately as a vile sinner in need of grace. He has failed to see that he could never do enough. He can never do enough obedience. He can never further reform his life. He could never order his thoughts even better so that finally he could say, I've done what is needed in order to obtain this everlasting life. How is it a chain? Because as he surveys men, he's always asking the question, how might I do better than they are? How might I reach the scale that finally says I've done enough? Instead of realizing that he is indeed in bondage to sin and misery. It's interesting, even the commandments that are cited, they are on the surface level focused upon outward behaviors. So think of these commandments. Christ says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, well that's an outward act. Do not kill, that's an outward act. Do not steal, that's an outward act. Do not bear false witness, that's an outward act. Honor thy father and thy mother, that's an outward act. How you speak and so on. And provide for them. What is missing from this list is that commandment which is on the face value even, spiritual. Thou shalt not covet. That commandment comes and searches us within. Christ isn't having a lapse in thought. He's not, as it were, for a moment saying, oh, yeah, I forgot the 10th commandment. He's setting up for this coming challenge to him. Christ, of course, is the good master. He's the perfect teacher. He knows where the weakness is. He knows where the lack of perception is. And he knows that the way in which he needs to order his approach in order for this man to come to terms with it is now set before him. He says, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all thou hast and distribute unto the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It's interesting, isn't it? There's nothing in his life, apparently, that was scandalous. There's nothing that Christ could have said, well, you said you haven't committed adultery, but I remember that time, right? Did you really? Remember when he came to the woman at the well and it says, go call your husband. And she says, you know, what are you talking about? I don't have a husband. Well, you say, well, you don't have a husband because you've had many before. And the man that you now live with is not your husband. Christ knows these things. He's coming to this man saying, you've misjudged. You've misjudged what goodness is. Goodness is not just an outward carriage, an outward manner of life that is free of scandal. It is a pervading reality of full conformity to the law of God in every jot and tittle, every detail. And so let it be clearly articulated here in our presence If you seek 
eternal life by your works, be sure you know what the standard is. The standard is not relative betterness than others. The standard is not you're comparatively in a better position than others. Your standard is not as the rich young ruler who comes and outwardly his life is free from the scandals of profane speech, from outward idolatry, from murder and from stealing and from all of these things. The standard is that in both outward action and inward thought and inclination and desire, there is nothing but full conformity to the perfect law of God. That there is no grumbling in the service of God. There is no you know, inward angst over the cause of God. There is no inward anger, sinfully so, against others. That our hearts and our thoughts and our wills are fully conformed to the law of God. This man, in other words, fails to see that God's goodness and the standard for man is far above what he could ever attain. He could not attain it. The question isn't in and of itself a wrong question. We see this kind of question asked later. What must I do to be saved? And the apostles say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. It's not a wrong question itself, but the context gives us an understanding of the posture of his soul. His soul is saying, what is the next good thing? What's the next thing I must do in order to do these things and gain eternal life? See, he had failed to see that the goodness which God possesses and the goodness which God demands by the works of the law is perfection. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in this book of the law to do them. All of these things, forgiveness of our enemies, love to our neighbor, a willingness to part with all temporal things in order to serve and know the Lord. This man failed to see that. The point of this aspect is that it's supposed to make us see how desperate our condition is. The man had a degree of desperation, didn't he? But when we start to see this unveiled before us, unfolded before us, what we see is a man who actually was not seeing and perceiving his desperate case well enough. It's as if, you know, people today, this happens, I'm sure, to many people. They get some sort of ache or pain. They get on the internet. They start searching, you know, all of these websites and they say, well, it could be any of these. They dig deep and they love to call themselves researchers and so on. And they say, well, I've discovered it's probably this. They finally go to the doctor and say, you know, I'm pretty sure it's this, that or the other. And the doctor runs a few tests and sometimes says, well, you got yourself all worked up over nothing. It's just this. And other times the doctor says, well, I see why you think that. Unfortunately, the tests say it's far worse than that. That's what Christ is saying to this man. You've got yourself worked up, and rightly so. But you don't know the half of it. You're in a far worse condition than you can imagine. You think that you're somehow crawling out of this pit of destruction by sin. But you aren't crawling out. You're deep in it yourself still. You have to perceive this. Sometimes young people, when they're raised in the church... They rightly see, as this man did, look at the profanity of the world. That's wrong. And so they order their lives outwardly rightly. Their mouths are largely free from profanity. Their eyes may be free from looking at things they shouldn't. Their bodies and their actions are free from certain outward sins. And the subtle temptation comes in. Maybe I'm saved because all these things that I've done. Parents can be tempted this way. They look at their children and say, well, they're walking in the way they should go. And all these things, are, look, they come to church, they're concerned, right? How many parents take right encouragement when their children ask questions and give diligence and spiritual things and yet take wrong assurance because what they aren't actually perceiving is a full dependence on the Lord. What they're perceiving is actually the self-righteous dependence upon their own actions. Pastors fall prey to this as well. In the whole 
web of iniquity in this world, it is rare to find a person who is earnest in their outward carriage, their outward action, and with questions, what must I do to be saved? And pastors hear that and they say, here's evidence of conversion, and fail to do the due diligence of asking the searching questions to determine, are these things merely legally produced out of a selfish concern, or are they evangelically produced by the grace of God leading them to rely solely upon Christ? Far too many, and hear this well, far too many Protestant and Reformed families, pastors, and churches have failed to concern, consider that conviction is not a sign of salvation. Outward concern is not a sign of salvation. Now, this doesn't mean we just sort of gruffly cast it off and distance it and say, well, you know, what's the big deal? It demands skillful labor. It demands careful questions. Why are you concerned? What is it that you want? Upon whom are you relying? And far too often people are ready as parents and pastors to spoon feed the people, the children, the adults, and others, and say, here's the answer, say this, and now you're okay. Notice Christ doesn't do any of that. Why? Because he's the good master. He's showing us the careful skill it takes to help souls see the difference between relying upon their legal work of righteousness and the difference between legal conviction that's produced by the law and the work of grace, which leads to other things. Here's the point. Legal conviction produced by the law An evangelical conviction produced by God's use of the law and the gospel will have similar evidences, similar appearances. It's similar to how some physical diseases will manifest with similar symptoms. But what has to happen is the probing then of what's taking place. What's actually giving rise to this? And this is what Christ is doing. He's probing. He's taking the skillful lance and digging in to the pain and finding out what's the source of what's being manifested. And more than that, he's helping the man see himself where the source is. And one such source is he has failed to reckon with the perfection of God and the perfection God demands. But there's a second part of this unseen chain. And it comes when Christ gives his counsel Notice, yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now put the question that the man asked with this part of the answer. Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Sell all that thou hast, distribute unto the poor, thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come follow me. There's his answer. Go do that. But notice what the man does. He heard this. He was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Now, it's right, as we'll see, that there is some focus upon the fact of having riches. But notice the essence of what's going on. The man is unwilling to part with his riches in order to lay hold of Christ. And when you step back and survey that this is what's taking place, he loves himself and his comforts more than he loves and desires Christ. That's the point. That's the fundamental thing. The man is in love with himself. And it starts as you then look backwards. It's like a flash in our brain. All of his approach is actually motivated by a love to himself. It's the very same thing that the Pharisee is doing in his prayer earlier. I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. I thank thee that I'm better than they are. I thank thee that I'm more religious than they are. Christ, you know, what should I do? Well, here are the commandments. I've done all of those. And Christ then puts his finger upon the man's chain so that he feels it, that he can't shake it. And he says, well then, go sell everything that you have, distribute it to the poor and follow me. And the man goes away sorrowful because he, was, he had many riches. What's being said is this. 
he had such a chain to himself that he couldn't shake or unlatch or break off. You see, the chain is not to something else. The chain is to oneself. Men love themselves. That's the fundamental problem. Riches accentuate it. They enhance this love. You see this in the world, don't you? As soon as men get more money, the common thing is that they spend the more money on themselves. It's rare to find someone who's making a living, you know, whatever that rate is, they get a substantial raise, that they continue living according to those means and simply give the rest to others and other services. That does happen sometimes. And of course, we're grateful for them. We're not saying that men can't provide for themselves more fully. But the point is, men are so sucked in upon themselves. That's their focus. If you were, as some researchers have, to survey YouTube and other apps and so on, you would find an overwhelming industry that is geared toward self-care. The fact that that's an expression today is telling for our world. There are whole industries that are built upon you looking better, feeling better, getting better, and so on. And whereas there are needs for certain helps, that there are industries that are raking in billions upon these things is telling about how exaggerated our culture is about self. Why is that? Look at this for a moment. In third world countries, they don't have those industries thriving because they couldn't be sustained. There's the need for wealth to sustain it. You can't go to a tribal nation and say, for $39.99, if you invest in this, you'll get all of this back because I don't have $39.99. I can't subscribe to that. I can't do that. I can't join that. I can't purchase that. All of that is off the table. Why? Because they don't have the wealth to procure it. It's not because they don't have the desire for it. It's because they don't have the means for it. And when the means are given and used for that purpose, what happens? It's actually the strengthening of the grip and chain upon ourselves. It's actually taking hold of us more fully that we would invest in ourselves. Christ sees all of this. We ought to remember clearly that riches are not the problem. There were rich men who served the Lord, as the gospel itself shows. There were men, as the epistles testify, who were influential and well-off men. This is not to stand against riches. And Christ, even as the extended narrative testifies, is not against riches. He says simply, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? It adds an obstacle. Why? Why do riches add an obstacle? Because riches are easily spent upon ourselves. And that's the heavy weight. We love ourselves. And we want to serve ourselves. Reading this morning in that most difficult chapter of Genesis where Judah visits a city and goes into a harlot whom he thought was a harlot, but was actually his daughter-in-law. And he says in the end, well, let her keep my signet, let her keep my bracelets, lest we be shamed. Do you understand? Judah was wanting to preserve his self-image. He was interested in not being shamed. He was interested in not being discovered, exposed, and shown for what he was. And yet the Lord ordered it in the end for his shaming. This man, through riches, before us here, was kept from much shame. And think of the shame it would bring to pass if he sold everything and became now as a beggar following Christ. It would expose him. But you see, it's as we read in Mark chapter 8. He that shall lose his life for my sake in the gospel shall gain it. This man in such a bondage to himself and a bondage to self-love and a bondage to personal interests and so on was willing to forgo the everlasting life 
to which he in some degree had been awakened. In other words, he would be his own savior instead of relying upon the savior. And frankly, that's what most men want today. They want a way that they can be their own savior. They'll take it through religion. They'll take it through other ways. They'll take it even through various forms of Christianity. But they want in the end to be their own savior. Why? Because they love themselves. Men love darkness rather than light. They would rather walk in the darkness than the light. And men love themselves rather than Christ. And they would rather rely upon themselves than Christ. But throughout the scriptures, what is the Bible doing? It's saying, look what happens to people who trust in themselves. Look what happens to people who rely upon themselves. Look at all that takes place to them. They may prosper tremendously for a season, even for a lifetime. But what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Brethren, as we close, see how far one may go and yet still come far short of salvation. This should inform our prayers. Yes, God convict my children. Yes, God convict this person. Yes, God bring conviction to them. Yes, God make them religious. Make them to break off this sin, that profanity and all these things. All of those are right prayers. But there's a work that must be performed by God that exceeds all of those things. And that work is unlatching the shackles of love to self that they would willingly cast themselves entirely upon Christ. Remember the context? Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. What must I do? I want to know what I need to do. And Christ has just said, if you don't receive it as a little child, you can't enter into it. What has to happen? What should we be praying for? Lord, bring us, bring them, bring my children, bring my spouse, bring these friends to the end of any hope of their own doing. Make them to see there is nothing that they could ever do to obtain so great a blessing as heaven is, as everlasting life is, as Christ is. Make them to realize that they have it not in their power to obtain everlasting life, that they must receive it as a little child. They must be entirely the recipient. Christ will take no token merit from men. Christ will take no effort from man in order to gain everlasting life. Whereas the violent take it by force, the violence is actually focused against personal sin and laying hold of Christ as he's offered to us. It's not violence of merit that take the kingdom of God by force. It's the fact that we must violently attack the root of sin and say, oh God, I need your grace. One may go very far by the standards of men and yet still be barred from the kingdom of God. This is something for us to examine. You know, is this chain still present in me? Perhaps I think myself fairly along the way. Young people will have this experience and they'll be aware of certain sins and they'll break from them and they'll think, well, you know, am I now a Christian? Have I now believed? This is a useful subject to examine. Well, am I just in the position of the ruler or am I actually humbled before the Lord for my own wretchedness and am I actually relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ exclusively? There are times when perhaps you've had the position of the, the experience of boarding a ship. You're on the dock, which is rather stable, and the ship is sort of moving up and down on the waves. And as you're stepping, you're holding on to something and placing a little bit of weight, trying to feel it and so on. And then eventually you step onto the boat and you're there committed. Far too many young people and adults alike are striving, as it were, to maintain both. I wish to be sort of in the kingdom of God, reliant, 
but I also want to be sure of my own grip of things as well. And what Christ is getting at when he challenges this man is saying, you must let go of all help and all assurance of yourself and follow me exclusively. Is that true of me? Well, brethren, we have no doubt but that many here have had even this chain so broken. Now, why is that chain broken for you? It's not broken because you were less rich than this man, though you may be. It's broken because the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. God has broken it. It's God who has come, and he has been pleased to liberate you, to redeem you from your bondage to sin and misery. And instead of leaving you, think of this statement. He was very sorrowful. He's sunken. He thought he was grieved and concerned. He's worse off now because he feels now the chain. Have you ever been walking along? You pass by something, you think you're free, and then your coat catches. That's what's just happened to this man. He's caught and he realizes, I can't free myself. I can't keep moving forward. The chain, Christ has basically said, you think you're free. He grabs the chain, he pulls the chain, and the man lurches back into the felt reality of his prison. And he says, here I am still. Why is it that you're free from the prison? Why is it that you're able, by faith, to know the riches and the assurance of having everlasting life? It's because Christ has been pleased not to yank the chain to make you feel your bondage, but to sever the chain and release you from that bondage and to receive you unto himself, giving you faith to take hold of him. This work is God's work. This is what the man failed to see. He was failing to see that if ever he should have everlasting life, it was not what must I do, but it's what must God do. God must do it. And it's when our children start speaking of that, that our hearts become elated. Oh, mom and dad, I need God to save me. I need God to save me. I need God to give me understanding. I need God to give me faith. If he doesn't work, my case is hopeless. That's what we want our children saying. That's what we want our spouses saying. That's what we want our parents and our loved ones saying. That's what we want our strangers saying. We want them to see that they are held captive to Christ. And except he adds the blessing, there is no hope. What will come is, of course, a similar awakening. But what will come is the expression of that awakening is, God, have mercy on me. Do you remember what the other man said off in the distance in the courtyard of the temple? He smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Christ said, that man went home to his house justified. The other who, like the ruler, had done all things outwardly well, who stood head and shoulders above others in religion and morality, did not go home to his house justified. But the one who received the kingdom of God as a little child, God be merciful to me, that man goes home in the kingdom of heaven. This ruler was still one eyeing entrance by his works. Whereas the entrance is by grace. What should we do? Well, we should cut off sin. There's no doubt. We should be violent against it. We should not be willing to tolerate sin in our presence and that from ourselves particularly. But we must, if ever we should have hope, go to Christ with the simplicity of a child Be merciful to me. Forgive me. Save me. And receive the kingdom as a little child. Would you stand with me then for prayer?